Good morning. I invite you to take your Bibles and go to the book of Revelation, uh, the last book of the Bible in the New Testament. That's where we're going to be spending the bulk of our time uh, this morning. And as you're going there, um, I want to ask you to identify, see if you can identify uh, this movie, okay? So Phil's got a, uh, <clears throat> the, the, the opening little, just one bar music. I want to see if anybody knows what movie this is from. Let's see. So what's the movie? Rocky. Yes, Rocky. Wow. Big fan of Rocky right there. Yes, good. Um, yes, that's Rocky Balboa, the greatest Italian to have ever lived, uh, besides my dad. But he's, uh, Rocky is, um, what a fantastic movie. Uh, Rocky IV is the best movie, by the way, um, because uh, Rocky IV uh, has Rocky, whose friend, uh, Apollo Creed, Apostles Creed, see the tie? It's a Christian movie even. And, um, and Apollo Creed gets killed by the Russian. The undefeated Russian kills uh, Apollo Creed. And so Rocky goes to fight against the Russian in the Soviet Union on Christmas Eve to battle this giant of a man. So they uh, he's, he's, ang- he's in anguish. His friend has died. His wife even leaves him for a time. Uh, just says, go, get out of here. She doesn't agree with it. She thinks he's going to be killed. And uh, he starts training. And he's training in the mountains. And he's training in the log cabin. And he's running up and down uh, mountains. And meanwhile, the Russian has the state-of-the-art technology. And he's taking steroids. Rocky's not taking steroids. He's doing sit-ups. He's in the barn. He's growing a beard. And... <laughs> And you get to the point of the fight, and you got the whole uh, Russian bureaucracy, the, the Politburo up there, Gorbachev himself watching, and they even say it as they come together before they touch gloves and fight, that this is a true, real life David and Goliath story. Rocky coming up against, uh, what's his name? Ivan Drago. Drago, yes. Ivan <laughs> <Yvonne> Drago. <clears throat> and... Uh, so what happens is Rocky uh, gets his brain beat in for about 12 rounds, and then he comes back at the end, and he wins. And uh, even the whole crowd at the end is chanting, Rocky, Rocky. And he's got the American flag. And he gives a moving speech, and, and all of communism crumbles in Russia because of <laughs> Rocky Balboa. Um, now this appeals to us. This appeals to us because of the way that we're wired, because of the way God made us. God has made us to worship, okay? And sin's come into the world and it's damaged our wiring, so we worship the wrong things, so we worship other people. We worship sports stars. We worship Rocky Balboa. We see that movie, and if you're like me, you kind of put yourself in that, and that could be me, and people would be calling my name. Or maybe for you as a kid, it was Davy Crockett or it was Nancy Drew. We have a tendency to worship the wrong thing. We're, we're wired to worship. That's the good thing. It's manufactured specifications. God has he's wired us to, to know him and have a relationship with him. But instead, because of sin, we worship the created thing and things rather than the creator God. That's Romans chapter 1. 
And so today I want to encourage your worship because it is what we're called to do. You want to know what the purpose of life is, the purpose of your being and existence? It is to worship and to glorify God. The Westminster Confession starts out with this. What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to uh, glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now, some of you are like, well, that's a confession. What does God's word say? Good, good. I'm glad you asked that. Um, Psalm 86, 8 through 13 says, There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. Isaiah 60, 21, your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. Romans eleven thirty six. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. First Corinthians ten thirty one. Whatever you eat, whatever you drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. The chief end of man, your end, men, women, children, is to worship and to glorify God. You're wired that way. So many things get in the way, and, and today we want to focus in on Jesus. And so we're going to look at uh, seven pictures of Jesus uh, from the book of Revelation. And so before we do that, let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we come to you uh, in the name of Jesus. We thank you for this time that we can come together. And I ask, Lord, that you would take our gaze, um, you would focus it in on yourself, on Jesus Christ the author and finisher of our faith. Lord, I pray for both Christians here and non-Christians alike. We're all in here together. Lord, that you would display yourself, that you would show up in a powerful way, that you would uh, save those who need to be saved and come to uh, faith in you this morning, that you would call back those believers who have pushed you away or have started glancing other places and have worshipped other things. Refocus us, God, I ask. I humbly ask this. It is for your glory. And I pray it in, in your name. Amen. Second Corinthians 3.18 says that we change, we grow as a Christian by beholding uh, the glory in the face of Jesus Christ. And we're changed from glory to glory. So as we grow in our faith, um, we're changed the more that we see Jesus. Isn't that true? The more that you see God working in your life, working in your kids' hearts, and you see God at work in our church, you see him doing things, your growth increases as you glimpse the glory of God in Jesus Christ. And so I want to do that this morning in the book of Revelation. Now, um, the book of Revelation is a tough one uh, to, to get our heads around. Um, because it's uh, a genre of literature called apocalyptic literature. And so um, John, uh, the disciple John, we believe, who's exiled to the island of Patmos for his faith in Jesus Christ, he writes this after a vision. Jesus comes to him and, and, and delivers this revelation to him. 
And so John writes this to the, the churches in the first century, but also through the power of God and his Holy Spirit, he writes this to us this morning. And so he's using language that we're not familiar with here in the 21st century. He uses language that um, is very uh, um, is subjective to uh, uh, elements that are happening in his day and, um, and, and representations of, of, of things that are to come or things that are different from what he's actually saying. Meaning this, he's using language that we don't use. And so let me give you examples as, uh, before we get rolling here of, uh, of things that are different in this type of literature. Numbers are a big deal, as you'll see in the book of Revelation. As you see the different numbers, they'll pop out at you and you'll wonder, what are they there for? Um, The number 12 is significant. The number 12 is representative of the people of God. There's the 12 tribes of Israel. There's the 12 disciples. 12, when you see that number in the book of Revelation, it represents the people of God. Also, a multiplication of that or a derivative of 12 is the same thing. So you'll see the number 144,000 in the book of Revelation. That is a number signifying the people of God. The number seven. What is the number seven in the Bible? Anybody? Number of perfection. So when you see the number seven, it means uh, perfect. It means complete. It means whole. Look at chapter 1 of Revelation, chapter, ch- Revelation chapter 1, uh, verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. So grace and peace to you from God, then the seven spirits, that's the Holy Spirit, and then Jesus Christ. There's God the Father, God the Spirit, and the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Son. We know that the Holy Spirit isn't seven, but he is described in this way, the seven spirits. That's because he's complete, he's whole, he's perfect, he's righteous. Then when you see the number three and a half, three and a half is half of seven, and that number is a number of incompleteness or of brokenness. It's a time when things are bad. And so three and a half years is also 1,260 days. And you'll see that in the book of Revelation. And so that's a time of brokenness, of incompleteness. So when you begin to see some of these things, they're not always uh, identifiable to us as we just break open the book of Revelation and start reading. Because uh, a lot of these images are representations of different things. And we got to do the hard work of uh, biblical interpretation to get to the heart of it. Let's start here. Number one, the Lamb is revealed. Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapters 1, 2, and 3 is, uh, contains letters uh, from Jesus to the seven churches located in Asia. And so Jesus himself is writing to these seven churches. To one church, he encourages them, and they're being persecuted. Another church, he says, you're lukewarm. I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. He, he's got a word for each church. He's writing a letter to the churches. That's the first three chapters. By the way, what would Jesus write to Village Bible Church? Chapter 4, then, we are ushered into the very throne room of God. John is taken there. 
by the power of, of the Spirit, chapter 4, verse 1, and I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And then a voice says, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. And in the Spirit, he, he's all of a sudden in the throne room of heaven. He's where God himself resides. And it's a marvelous thing. He, he can barely contain himself. He sees one seated on the throne. And then he has a description of it. And there's lightnings and rumblings and thunder and seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, it was a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures. He describes the creatures. All these creatures are around the throne. And look at verse 8, and here's what they're saying. Day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is to come. Around the throne of God right now are his angels declaring his holiness, his righteousness, his justice, his perfection, who he is, holy, holy, holy. And they never cease to declare that. When you were born, they were around the throne of God doing the same thing. When our nation was founded, they are around the throne of God praising his name. When creation was spoken into existence, they were around the throne of God praising his name. And now John gets to witness this, the throne room. Verse 11, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Now we come to chapter 5. And in chapter 5, we see something unfold in the throne room of heaven that is just amazing. It's the Lamb being revealed. Verse 1, Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Seven's the number of perfection, right? And this scroll is sealed with seven seals. It's in God's hand. This is God's will, his purposes, his plan, his provision. This is the total will of God that is to come. And it's in God's hand, and it's sealed. Verse 2, and I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Who is worthy to open the scroll? Raise your voice. Let's say that together. Who is worthy to open the scroll? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. No angel in heaven, no demon below, not Satan, no king of earth, no mighty man of valor, no one can open the scroll. Verse 4, and I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Why are you weeping, John? Why are you crying? He's crying because the plan's and the purposes and the provision of God himself will never come to fruition. Evil will go unpunished. Those who have died for God, for Jesus, those who have given of their life are lost forever. 
Hell is a reality for everybody. There is no salvation. God's plans will not come about. And he's weeping because it won't happen. One of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and the seven seals. It's a lion. And between the throne, he looks, John, verse 6, and the four living creatures among the elders, right in the middle, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who is seated on the throne. So out of the center of the throne, look, a lion, and he looks and he sees a lamb a slaughtered lamb coming from the center of the throne. And the lamb comes and takes the, the scroll. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And I looked and I heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. This is the Lamb. And then every creature in heaven, on earth, under the earth, in the sea, all that is in them, saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. This is the Lamb revealed. This is Jesus. Now what does the Lamb do? Number two, the Lamb redeems. He redeems. You see that here already. He, by your blood, you ransomed the people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. But then go to chapter 7, verse 9. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, and who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto our God forever and ever. God is redeeming a people. The Lamb redeems a people, salvation to them by his blood. Now these people are brought forth from the great tribulation. Verse 14, I said to him, Sir, you know, and he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, it is interesting to do a study on end times and, and what is the tribulation, what, you know, what, what's the timing of it, all those different um, things. Uh, but here's the big idea. The main point is this. We're in a time of tribulation right now. And we might not know the end and how it's all going to work out to get 
to the end. Uh, we know the ending, by the way, and that's going to come up, but, but we don't know exactly the timing of everything, but we know this. We have tribulation. Jesus said it uh, to his disciples and to us himself. John 16, In this life you will have trials or troubles or ESV, tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus has defeated all the tribulation so that you can come to him by faith and believe you can be delivered from the tribulation that is now and that is to come. And that's through Jesus, the Lamb who redeems. Number three, pictures of Jesus. The church conquers Satan by the blood of the Lamb. By the blood of the Lamb. Chapter 12, verse 1. And a great sign appeared in heaven, and a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. What was the number 12 again? Number of 12 represents the, the, who? The people of God. So this woman has 12, uh, the crown on her head. Um, This is the people of God. It's the woman. It's uh, the the people of God, the nation of Israel. It's the church. It's it's both. It's, It's those who are the people of God. And she's here. She's pregnant. She's crying out in birth pains in the agony of her birth. Verse 3, and another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads, number of perfection, but then there's ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. So there's, not, there's something wrong here. There's this ten thing. The, the dragon's not good. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to earth, and the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule the nations with a rod of iron. Who's that? Jesus. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. So in verse 5, you have the birth, the life and ministry, the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus all right here in verse 5. And the woman then fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. It's a a broken time, incomplete time, tribulation time. She's nourished by God. It's the church age, but everything's not right yet. We know that, right? There's still sin. There's still cancers. There's still death. There's still separation. There's still suffering. But God nourishes us through that time, but it's a time of brokenness. Then what happens? Verse 10, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ, of his Christ, has come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him, here it is, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. So here, the great dragon... The enemy of our souls, the great accuser of the brethren, of men and women, constantly accusing of unforgiven sin, he is conquered by the blood of the Lamb. Now, what's the deal with this blood stuff? Okay? What's with the blood? I think even if some of us who have been Christians for a long time, we've been in church a long time, it's still, it's kind of, how do we explain that, right? Right? Why does, why does God demand a blood sacrifice? And it's a great study to do. Go through the Old Testament into the New Testament and see the sacrificial system and what it represents. We don't have time to do that this morning, but we just will say this. The most that a person can give is his, her blood. 
Without your blood, you don't have life. It's the most that you hit, have. And God is holy and perfectly, uh, holy, W-H, holy and perfectly righteous and holy, H-O-L-Y. He is perfect. And so he cannot accept any sin. And so you must pay for your sin before a holy and righteous God. You must make amends for the wrongs that you have made. And the only way you can do it is by giving of your blood. Because that's the most you got. And he demands the most because that's how perfect he is. But you say, wait, wait a second. Why can't God just overlook some sins? Why can't he overlook my sin? Why can't he overlook lying? That's not a big deal, right? Why can't he overlook stealing? Why can't he overlook gossiping? I mean, can't he just accept us all in? It breaks down when we push it further. Because we're made in the image of God, we know what the truth is. And the truth is, we want justice as well. And so God requires blood for all sins because we don't want Adolf Hitler to get away with what he did in World War II, do we? We don't want the, the child murderer to get away with that. Somebody's got to be held accountable. We don't want someone who's wronged us not to know the consequences of their sin. There's got to be accountability. And before the perfect and holy righteous God, the most that anybody can give is their blood. But here's, here's the thing. Jesus shed his blood. He was perfect to pay for your sin and my sin. And that conquers the enemy of our souls, Satan, who accuses us of, of our sin. So the only weapon that he has is an accusation against us that we're sinful. And it's a valid accusation, but the blood of Jesus conquers him and disarms him because Jesus paid the price for our sin on the cross. That's why the blood is important. That's why there's power in the blood. Number four, the marriage feast Revelation 19. Verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God reigns, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. These are the true words of God. There's a feast in store for those who are followers of Jesus Christ, who have been cleansed by his blood. This is the marriage feast. You've been to a wedding. Weddings are celebrations, right? And you gather and you have a reception. And you're supposed to celebrate and be, it's a good time. It's a joyous time. It's a time that uh, you don't forget and, and you're with loved ones. And for, this is the marriage supper of the Lamb. So that all believers, all Christians are here and celebrating. Our culture's got it all messed up. Our culture says that hell is where the party's at. No, no, heaven's where the party's at. Our culture's saying, well, heaven's boring. You're going to go to an unending church service? Uh, 
that's not the picture of heaven. I mean, I love our church and our church services, but I don't want to sit in the service for 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And that's not the picture of heaven. Your far side comic had a, a picture of a guy floating in the clouds, and he said, I wish I brought a magazine. Um, that's not heaven. Heaven is a celebration. It's where the party is. Hell is where the separation is and the isolation is. And the fear is heaven, the marriage feast, is going to be unbelievable and you're invited. Number five, the rider on a white horse. Revelation 19 Verse 11. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is Jesus. Worship him. Jesus' humiliation didn't start at the cross. Jesus' humiliation started in the manger as a little baby where he was dependent upon his mom and his dad to be taken care of, to have his diaper changed. The humiliation started there. It reached its culmination in the cross when he was murdered at the hands of evil men. As he cried out, Father, forgive them. But there's coming a day when he's going to make all the wrongs go away. He's going to make all the wrongs right He will make the crooked paths straight. There's coming a day where sin's going to be judged and the evildoer will face the wrath of God. And this is the rider on the white horse. There's coming a day where there's a battle. And if you're on the Lord's side, if you're on the rider on the white horse's side, it's going to be a battle that you're going to like to fight in because you don't have to do any of the fighting. His word goes out. Justly, his wrath is poured out on sin. John Walsh. For many years, he was the face of America's Most Wanted. You know how John got involved with America's Most Wanted was because his six-year-old son, Adam, was kidnapped outside of a Florida shopping mall. Later on, they found his decapitated body. For many years, the case remained open, and so John poured himself into finding wanted criminals who had escaped justice. They finally closed the case on Adam Walsh's murder, and they said a guy had done it who had already died in prison. Not much satisfaction found uh, for the Walsh family, as they especially think of how the end came to little Adam. The rider on the white horse is coming. And his wrath is going to be poured out on all evildoers. And all sin is going to be made right. But here's the thing, not just for Adam Walsh's murderer, 
but for you. It is a serious thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. Number six, the faithful witness. Actually, the king of kings. Number six, the king of kings. We go back to the beginning of Revelation here. Chapter one. Quickly want to go to verse four. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and was, who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of kings on the earth. First, this king of kings, he's called the faithful witness. Israel was called to be God's witness as his people, as his representatives The church is called to be his witnesses now, to speak on behalf of God, to be the hands and feet of Jesus. But Jesus, and Jesus alone, was the faithful witness. He didn't fail. He didn't falter. He didn't crumble. He was the witness of God Almighty unto the end. And he continues to be. He's the faithful witness. Then you see here, he's the the firstborn of the dead. He's the firstborn. Now, what I like about this is because if there's a firstborn, that means that there's a secondborn, and there's a thirdborn, and there's a fourthborn from the dead. Because Jesus conquered death, you and I have the hope of eternal life. You and I have the hope of resurrection glory because he is the first, and we come after. And then he's called the ruler of all the kings of the earth. He's the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now, you see this resume... He's the faithful witness. He's the firstborn of the dead. He's the ruler of all kings. This person could demand worship, right? That's what we're talking about, worshiping Jesus, glorifying him, giving him your affection. This guy could demand it. But look what the text says. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. He doesn't demand. He loves He loved so much that he gave of his blood for you and for me. Ernest Gordon was in World War II. He was taken prisoner by the Japanese and put to a camp in Burma. This same camp had over 16,000 prisoners who were brutally uh, murdered as they were building a railroad for the Japanese. You can read his story in his book called Through the Valley of the Kwai. In the book, he recounts a story where all of the prisoners were gathered and one of the guards was very mad. He had discovered that a shovel was missing and he was asking for a shovel and nobody said anything. And he, said, he started yelling and he wanted this shovel and demanding it and didn't say anything. He started pointing the gun at them. And as he was pointing the gun to, to them and knowing full well that he intended to shoot them all, he said, I'll die, I'll die. And a man raised his hand and stepped forward, said that he had taken the shovel. Two other guards came out, and they beat him and clubbed him to death in front of the rest of the prisoners. They were then ordered to take his body back to where they put all the bodies back by the tool shed. And after that, they looked in the tool shed and counted the shovels, and all of the shovels were there. Their fellow prisoner had given of his life for them. What an amazing story of love. There is one greater, friends, 
the Lord Jesus Christ, who has given of his blood for you so that you might be saved. Your sins be forgiven and wiped clean, that you would have a clean slate before God Almighty. It's the last picture. He's the Alpha and the Omega. The Alpha and the Omega. We end at the end of the book, Revelation 22. Verse 12. Behold, Jesus is speaking, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside of the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexual immoral and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who lives and practices, loves and practices falsehood, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. And let the one who wants to take the water of life without price. Jesus says, come. Jesus says, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Have you come to Jesus? Do you have faith in him that he died for you? Do you believe in him? See your Savior and Lord? He says to you, come. If you have come, worship him anew today because of the great gift that he has given in salvation. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks for uh, your word uh, today. And uh, Lord, I pray that there wouldn't be anyone in here who wouldn't confess you as Lord. They believe in their heart that Jesus has been raised from the dead, that he's alive today, that he died for me. They would call on your name to be saved. We thank you for your promise that everyone who calls on your name will be saved. Thanks for this glimpse into who you are, Lord Jesus, as well from the book of Revelation. May it spur us on, fire us up to live for you all the more as we see the day coming, the day approaching where you're coming back. We look forward to it, Lord. Thanks for heaven. Thanks for glory. Thanks for your love. And it's in Jesus' beautiful name we pray. Amen.